Hello, this is Jay Khadija Abdurrahman, and we're on We Be Imagining podcast. Today is Thursday, July 30th, 2020. It's 106 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. What's up, what's up? I'm here with my co-host, Stanley Munoz. How you doing today, Stanley? I'm doing well today. I'm doing very, very well, Khadija. Oh, you know what? I forgot our whole intro thing. So I'm the director of We Be Imagining well, podcast. <laughs> I, um, it, it's about to be August. I mean, you know. Uh, you she, her pronouns, and Stanley, if you could say a little bit about yourself and your pronouns. Yeah, of course. Uh, so I'm a dancer and choreographer based in Los Angeles right now, though maybe heading back to New York in a bit, we're going to see. Uh, but my pronouns are he, him, his. Elon, shout out. Mandel, what's up? Say a little bit about yourself. How you doing? Yeah, I'm, I'm doing good. I'm back in the lab, and it's deserted. I'm, I'm Elon Mandel. I'm a researcher at Cornell Tech in the Future Autonomy Research Group. Uh, I use he, him, his. I- I'm doing all right. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, and you, you leveling up because you've been a clerk for like two years, so now you're a PhD right. student. Big things. Yeah, okay. I liked being a clerk because it was always funny to be in these rooms where everyone's like, "Yeah, you know, I'm a third year PhD student. My research is on X, Y, Z, blah, blah, blah." And then like it kept comes to you, and you're like, "Yeah, like uh, my name's Elon. I'm a, I'm a, you know, level two clerk, and my research is on X, Y, Z." And people are always a little bit thrown by the title, uh, well, but Clark I enjoyed it. captures that like Kafka-esque um, <laughs> institutional hegemony. Although I think there's a transition anyway, away from like, I guess, to, to, to the white supremacists. But anyway, different story. So <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I don't know if that was in reference to me, but like, I, I try not to. <laughs> no, 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 no. A lot, lot, know, larger, is that, you know, innovation and I, such. I understand. Um, so today, today we're going to get it together because we've got a really dope episode planned with Mimi Anuha, a Nigerian-American artist and researcher whose work highlights the social relationships and power dynamics behind data collection. Her multimedia practice uses print, code, installation, and video to call attention to the ways in which those in the margins are differently abstracted, represented, and missed by socio-technical systems. And Mimi, I just want to really welcome you to the show because you must, we ask everyone who comes on to the show, who do you recommend that we speak to? What are you reading? What are you listening to? And your name came up on like 85% of every, of of the episodes that we have so far. So thank you so much for making the time to come on the show. Of course. Thank y'all for having me. I am genuinely, you know, all the time people will be like, I'm thrilled to be here. And you're like, are you? But I genuinely am. (laughs) (laughs) Um, can you say a little bit more outside of the, like the traditional academic bio about who you are, your work, and your pronouns? Yes, my pronouns are she, her, hers. Um, I am an artist and a writer and a researcher. I guess anything within those titles or outside of it, I don't know. Um, and I really am just interested in actually what that bio said, but just in a less complicated way. Um, I'm just interested in a lot of emerging technology, but the way that it kind of ties to the existing social systems that we are constantly encountering. Um, and really, a lot of the work I do is trying to look at the, the space between those, looking at the myths inherent within that, like the ways in which people say that something is really new, but actually it's really old and on top of systems of oppression, or the ways in which people are taking a system that is really violent, but actually trying to find ways to make it work within their own spaces. So I like to do a lot of different work. I like to work in different forms because the world is in all different forms. And I don't, I've just never really been very good about staying in one, one discipline or one lane or one whatever. So I just like to work across as many forms as I can um, that feel like they are grounded 
and relevant. Yeah, well, I definitely, I definitely vibe with that. On a good day, it sounds like really packaged, just interdisciplinary. Sometimes it feels like disorganization, depending on the moment. <laughs> it's both. It's both and. <laughs> yeah, that's my version of disruption. Um, so I really like was introduced to your work through the through the missing data kind of lectures and installations, and it wasn't until I was preparing for this episode that I saw your dissertation on death and Facebook. And it feels so particularly prescient right now in this moment of twin pandemics, where both the grief is disproportionate as well as the amount of time we spend online. And so I'm just really curious about how you've been thinking and reflecting on that, um, on that, on that paper, you know, kind of nine years out in this moment. Yeah, Kanita, I want to know how you even found that, because I thought that paper was buried. That's from my undergraduate, like, college. But it is, I'm kind of, I don't know how you found it, but I really respect it. And actually, it is really interesting because that was uh, the thing that really got me into being interested in the space. And basically what happened was, this would have been, oh my gosh, almost a decade ago. Um, And really what happened was that a friend of mine died. And this was back in 2010, I think. And it was at a time when Facebook was not completely new, but it has it wasn't what it is now, which I think is sometimes hard to remember. You know, it was a moment before Facebook was everywhere, <laughs> before it was like embedded. It was a moment where we weren't sure if it was like Facebook was still going to exist in a couple of years. Um, and that moment when mostly it was like university students on it. And I think it had just opened up to high school students. And really what happened was that a friend of mine, um, a friend of mine died and there was it still was also in that time, there weren't really norms or customs around how people expressed grief online. And so what happened was this thing that I found really interesting at the time, which was that loads of people went to her Facebook page and were posting all these things um, to her, but sort of to her community, the other people who could see it. But also loads of people were posting things there and being like, how dare you? How dare you use this platform? What is wrong with you? How dare you disrespect the memory of this person? And I was like, wow, this is, I don't know what this means. I think also <laughs> dealing with my own grief in that moment and also trying to make sense of it and thinking, what does this mean? Is this private? Is this public? Who is this for? Is this a memorial? Who gets the right? And then also really the thing that really uh, stood out to me about that moment was that it felt like whatever was decided was going to seem inevitable five or 10 years down the line. It was just going to seem like that's how it was. But it was really interesting to be in a moment where people were fighting over the like cultural rules of a space. And I think that I have felt really interested in that in a lot of my work because that is the thing that we see with like a lot of this emerging technology that we're all talking about is people fighting over like what is gonna be what are gonna be the terms of this? What are we gonna decide? And these battles are really important because then I think, again, down the line, you start to just normalize it and you're like, that's just what it is. So what did that answer your question? What was your actual question? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I didn't really ask a question. I mean, I just really wanted you to respond to it. But the two things that that kind of raised for me is that there's this like larger question around death and how does how do we grieve in Western societies where kind of the the Christian Protestant ethos is a lot around, you know, the the veil, the silent burial, which is like very culturally distinct from like, for example, I went to Ethiopia, most of my family's from Ethiopia. So I went back home in 2009. And when I went, when I exited the airport, 
I immediately heard the sounds of like grieving and wailing over the body. There's this very like effusive outpouring of emotion, like collectively, um, when any when anyone passes in Ethiopia. And I think that's true for you know large large portions of of the world. And like, what does it mean that kind of our our dominant like civil modern society is so so emotionally repressed? And like, how does that um, translate online? But the other thing that I think you were kind of alluding to in your response that I'm curious about is in the paper you cite Ronald Grimes saying it matters not only that we birth and die, but how we birth and die. So I was thinking about like, what are the ways in which the most basic aspects of humanity, death, birth, you know, people are out here like posting Instagram lives, like as the baby's coming out the womb, um, on one, (laughs) on one level, this is like public, right? But and you have the erosion of these privacy policies that you talk about in the paper on Facebook. But in the other level, like what is this public when the public is on this proprietary software? So I'm just curious mm. about how you're thinking, you know, how how this issue of grieving and death on Facebook and how that's changed since you put out the paper um, embodies larger societal norms around tech and privacy as they've evolved over the last decade. Oh, there was so much there. Okay, okay. One of to okay to start back at the beginning with what you were saying, just when you were talking about going to Ethiopia, um, something that you talked about is something that I talked about there and that I still think about now is really the ways in which different practices around grief are expressed and allowed in different places. And I think allowed is a good word because what I think about a lot in this Western society, I'm here in the US, um, is the way in which emotion is. Um, is yeah, just permissible for like a certain amount of time when you're talking about grief. And what I mean by that is like, you know, there, there are funerals, you go to the funerals, somebody's upset. You're like, absolutely. I'm there for you. I got you. And then at some point it almost feels like societally, you know, I, I'm thinking, I'm thinking not just about mm-hmm. like interactions with people, but also like our structures and our jobs and the ways in which how much time you're allowed to get off. Even there's this sense of like, okay, now move on. Here we go. Life keeps going. And I contrast, I'm Igbo, I'm Nigerian, specifically, I'm an Igbo girl. And we have a whole, like, traditions around grief that last for at least, like, the, the most basic one is at least a year. At least. Because you're like, it's a whole, like, this is a whole experience. And I know something, um, one of the last times I was back in Nigeria, it was, um, I was there for actually a funeral of uh, a relative and something, uh, my grandma. And something that really stood out to me was how, this there was also this idea of kind of action and emotion. I think here a lot of what here in the U.S. a lot of what I see is how you're supposed to you feel a kind of way and then you act that way. And a lot of Igbo grief rituals do not assume a kind of feeling and then action. It's an action that will bring you to a feeling. So it's like you should be sobbing, and if the sobbing is what allows you to feel the sadness, you get like you should be acting. And there are ways that different people who are differently related to the deceased person. There are different ways in which they're supposed to act. And in acting that way, that's what brings you to the emotion. And that just is something that always really, really just stuck with me, just in a general sense, thinking about grief, just how there's this thing that we all feel we all are going to go through, we all have to experience, but there that there are still kind of boundaries around how, how it is allowed is endlessly interesting to me. And especially because it's not, it's grief is one of those things where it's not just it can't be just academic. It never is. And I think of, you know, I'm really interested in these topics where it's like, you can't just try to make this abstract. This is very, this is at the same time symbolic and like very concrete within us. So there's that part of it. 
But then this other thing that you're talking about, I think is so interesting about what do we do with the things like these huge life events and emotions and our need to have them be seen and our need to communicate them, but also the fact that the way that we have to communicate them now is through these sites that we know, you know, we know that we don't own, that we know we don't have any kind of power over. We are well aware of that. I think it says something really a lot about us that we all, I think loads of people, there's, I get kind of tired of this narrative where it's like, if you just show people, they'll understand. Just tell, you know, people don't know that Facebook, people know what Facebook is like. People know, we know, we know we've all been around. We know that we don't have a power and control and ownership over these things. It's just that also we still have this need to share and this need to connect. And that is something that I think does get exploited, which is maybe a topic for somewhere else. But it's um, one, uh, I've been looking at a lot of stuff in like the misinformation and disinformation scene and something that uh, my partner talks about a lot who works at, he works at Witness and he talks a lot about how people in the, like when people are sharing things online, it's not just that you are trying to share a fact or some kind of information. You're also, it's your, it means something when you share it in sharing it, you're asserting a kind of identity and you're trying to say, this is the kind of person I am. And this is the kind of things that I believe in. And it not, it's not always like a one-to-one direct relationship. Sometimes it's just like, these are, I just want to also talk about who I am. And so I think that this is the space where it gets so hard when we think about these tech companies is that it isn't just, it's not just data. It's so much, it's so much of ourselves that is there too. I think one of the things that uh, came to mind when Khadija was speaking also was this, this idea of like, who are the people that, that build these platforms, right? Like what gets culturally encoded in them, right? We spoke to Sarah Roberts much earlier in the season mm. about content moderation and you, you have this kind of colonialism that happens, right? Where the people who are defining what is acceptable content, acceptable grieving, acceptable ways to be in online spaces now are, are being written within a certain mindset. Uh, I forgot who the author was, but there was, there was someone who described the process of creating a social network before Facebook um, and giving up on it. And it was uh, the person writing was... I don't know if it was a single mother, I'm, I'm forgetting the article, but they were talking about the values that get culturally encoded, right? Like we talk so much about like free speech on online spaces, but like the, the First Amendment is not referring to private companies. Mm. And yet we just like decided that this was one of these values that gets encoded in this like one-to-one way. And I, I don't know, I think there's something very interesting about the idea that these spaces are being defined within certain contexts, right? Like Silicon Valley is a, is a mindset that encodes its values, but then because there is so much economic and social power in these spaces, it gets exported everywhere, right? So like now if you want to grieve on Facebook, you have to grieve in ways that are acceptable to, you know, a kind of specific cultural context, no matter where you may be. Yeah. Definitely. I think that the word that I always think about when it comes to this is just overrepresentation. Just the way that, as you said, one group gets to sort of decide what the rules are going to be, but then gets to overrepresent that and force everybody else into that same way, uh, that same paradigm, that same way of being. It's, I mean, really, it's two words I think about. It's overrepresenting and then also incomplete, like the incompleteness of that, that is also always tied to it at the same time. Hmm. This is like kind of significantly tangential, but have you ever watched Six Feet Under? No. 
I don't I don't watch a lot of TV, and when I do watch TV, I don't watch a lot of white TV. But this is like one of my top like white shows. It was on HBO, and it was about a family owned um, funeral home, and it was about five five seasons, and it's really like examining this this these notions of like how do we grieve here in America, but then also like through the course of these five seasons. Um, the, there's like these larger, uh, monopoly, uh, big funeral homes that want to buy out all the little funeral homes that change the way that we grieve inherently. Mm. And so looking at the business of, of death in a way is kind of like a parallel to what we're experiencing with tech and like hashtag break up big data, uh, break up big tech that's been going on Twitter yesterday. Um, so it's just, it's just interesting. It's just interesting to me, but I'm just wondering, um, does does COVID nineteen in this particular moment kind of change the ways in which you're thinking about any of these questions? Well, there's I'm gonna yes I want to just rewind a little bit to what you were saying about that business of death. Um, there's this project that I started years ago and had so much trouble with it, where it was around death certificates and just something so simple. The death certificate is just a really really interesting form, I think, because it is trying to be like seven different things at once where it is a document that you have to use to prove like as evidence almost when you're like, yes, this person really close to me died. But then also there's this, that pain of like someone's death is put like within this document at the same time. But then also just even encoding this, this question of like, what does it mean to say what somebody has died from is a really fraught question. And all of those, I think it, I find death certificates really interesting for thinking about like the needs, death as this human process that has to be then put into this data form and then used for so many things. And then this, something I found really um, interesting when I was doing research here in New York is realizing that the everyone, everyone who dies has a death certificate, um, nearly, nearly everybody who dies for the most part will get a death certificate, even if their body is just going to be like dumped on Heart Island even if whatever happens, like the, the need for them to be cataloged into a state kind of database, that data of their death becoming really important. And usually the reason for that is public health. <laughs> There's kind of the tie into COVID where, uh, at least for me, when I would talk with people in the um, Bureau, of, Bureau of Vital Statistics here in the, in the city, they would say, well, you know, we do this. This is really just for account, accounting reasons and also public health. It helps us know, uh, know things a little bit better. But just there's this, I, I, it sounds so morbid, but I do find the subject of death and grief really fascinating because it forces, uh, it really just eludes that I'm all, you know, I'm always interested in things that kind of push back against our need for metrification, quantification. And so much around death does do that. With COVID, there's, oh my gosh, I think there are just so many different directions to go in with thinking about this, just about undercounting and overcounting about like various black and brown communities being disproportionately affected by this. There is almost, I find it almost too much to say, <laughs> like it's too, it's, it's so big in thinking about this. Um, I don't think you asked if it has changed for me, how I'm thinking about things. I don't know if it has changed so much as a really exemplified, maybe, you know, there's some things there's, and at least on the data and death side of it, but I'm curious what y'all think. Well, I was going to say two things. One of the death certificates, you know, thinking for me and my research focus on child welfare, like a big thing that comes up is birth certificates. So when a child is adopted, the biological parents are removed from the birth certificate. 
and, you know, any of their previous names with the first or the last name is changed. And, you know, there's some adoptees who are now organizing in order to change those laws because people will be unable to track down their biological family um, unless they do those DNA te- consumer DNA tests, which are, are fraught with, you know, other mm-hmm. issues. And so these are both like incredibly like political documents, which is maybe an obvious statement. And also they're it's not inevitable. So like when my father came to this country as a foreign exchange student, he had to provide a birthday. But in uh, Jimma, like the countryside of Ethiopia, which was like a coffee plantation where he was raised, there was nobody out here like documenting births. I mean, that was like just not even that didn't even just it wasn't even thought about, um, particularly at that at that time. And so he like, you know, he picked a date. And, you know, like when I asked, like, how old were my grandparents? I'm getting like estimates based on like visibly, like how do they look and like relative to someone else. And so, you know, and this is like a long existing civilization. So it's just funny that we feel like so much of this requires this kind of bureaucratic process when it really is like not so, so necessary. And even on a public health level, I'm just, I'm not, I'm not convinced that data is a solution to our public health problems. You, you know, you just you saying that, I just want to say I have the same experience. My I was talking about my grandma who passed away, and we don't know what year she was born in. It's okay. It has, you know, it still it didn't really change anything. Um, my my uh, parent, my dad and the rest of his siblings ended up kind of choosing a date for her because um, she had to have some things on forms. But just to your point, I was looking at death certificates in the in New York and in the U.S., but specifically here, starting from here and then kind of getting wider. And you'll see as time goes on, more and more and more and more information is collected on these death certificates where you start to see, just again, to your point about the, politi- the, politi- the politicization of this, uh, just and also the datification of it, this kind of sense of, oh, if we can just like get more, then we can do X, we can do Y. There's now all these questions that are meant to really hint at class, you know, where it's like, what? This person's died. Like, what? What? What was the year of schooling that they achieved? Uh, did they smoke? Did they do this? Like, all of these different questions. That if you look at previous forms, this just was not the case. So there is. I'm just echoing the, the sentiment that you have said. But say, yeah, you can see that looking at the form itself over time as well. Well, also, I th- I think a lot about death. One because um, in another project I worked on, Words Who Are we collaborated with Reimagine End of Life, which does these like big festivals mm. on the West and the East Coast, kind of bringing together artists and activists and like everyday people, religious leaders, to do different kind of programming around what you know what does it mean to die, like the process, philosophically, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I thought a lot about it through that and like kind of the events that we did. And then my mother is also a palliative care nurse, nurse practitioner. Um, so I, I've spent a lot of time thinking about death. I'll say like on the data side, I don't think this has gone mainstream, but I remember when I was doing research around this, that of course there were some people trying to predict who's most likely to die in order to allocate, um, hospice care. This is pre COVID, right? Mm-hmm. And so it, it can already go into these like horrifying, horrifying directions. Mm, yeah, yeah. You saying that. I remember um, writing. Yeah, I, I just I agree with I also think a lot about I just think it's so it, it just touches on so many things. And also there is that great uncertainty and also um, like taboo and fear just in talking about death in general. But then at the same time, that is like right up alongside this need for it to be embedded within all these other systems and also needs to be counted within this bureaucratic process for making sense of people in the world or for states to make sense of people in the world. 
Um, but there's also, this just reminds me, this is a little tangential, but I had to do this article um, years ago that was talking about causes of death around the world. And, um, oh, I can't even remember the, the bureau that I was even talking to, but they uh, were just talking about rather than, they were, they were talking about years of life lost as a way to try to understand uh, death and how people were dying. And it started from this idea of everyone should live to X age. I can't remember even what the age they said was, but they were like, this is the age everyone <laughs> should live to. So if people don't reach this age, then something like there is something lost, there is something gone. And I was like, this is so... <laughs> this need to calculate. Yes. This need to calculate. Yes. It's like pathological. It, exactly. Well, how, long, how long until we see the startup that says, oh, we're, we're disrupting death, guys? Oh. We're gonna no, so there is... It's a thing. Oh, no, great. it's a thing. Oh, so I learned oh, it. <laughs> well, then there's also the the predictive analytic things in, in child welfare that are, are trying to predict the kid's risk of removal, like prenatally. Um, yeah, big sigh, big sigh. I mean, like the Allegheny, the Allegheny pilot of, of predictive analytics and child welfare, like one of the, the data categories that they were looking at is like, is the mother a single parent? And so this is not by self-disclosure, right? So I was like, how does this happen? So they, they want to uh, modify the MOUs or the Memorandum of Understanding between city and state um, child welfare agencies and the Department of Health and Mental, Mental Health and Hygiene um, so that they have access to birth certificates. So if, it's, if there is a second parent absent, that person is then classified as at risk according to that attribute, even if somebody has never made an allegation. So this is when all the documentation gets complicated. But the thing that I've been thinking about, right, is that I have to tell you, you know, so I did a, a podcast episode, a live recording between myself and my colleague, Tally Goff, um, for our hey. kind of summer Cornell Tech class. Oh, she said, what's up, by the way. Oh, I was uh, about to say, yo, PhDJ, I'm yes. all up. Yes. She's lovely. Yeah, no, she's, she's super dope. She's fantastic. So we did this live podcast recording. And so her idea for the topic, and I was with it, the students was with it, was problematic faves. And so when I saw you published your piece in 538, I was like, you know, the signal and the noise is definitely my problematic fave. <laughs> and so I really, I just like that catchphrase. I found that to be helpful when that came out. But at the same time, you know, Silver has that kind of Malcolm Gladwell-esque mm -hmm. emphasis <laughs> on kind of the lone bro genius who pivots yes. on mathematical modeling and the physical sciences to make some to be generous, questionable beliefs in analyzing the social sciences. And so, I mean, this is a little bit long-winded, but I, I was really curious about what led you to publish in 538 and how it connects to the other thing is that your, your piece itself kind of really reminded me of Zoe Sasmudi's uh, essay, White Witness and the Contemporary Lynching. Mm. Oh, yes. Um, great. So I echo your sense of um, 538. I, um, I never read uh, Nate Silver's Signal in the Noise, but I hear you on the phrase. Um, I have always found, to be just very, very frank, I mean, 538 to me has this very specific vibe to it of like mm. white dude bro statistician no not even like data like I'm you know I, I know the world because I have my data and my models and like there's kind of this sense of authority and a certain a certainty in reality <laughs> that just feels embedded within it and what happened the way that I ended up publishing that piece was that actually there's an editor that I had worked for uh worked with at 538 almost four or five years ago 
And I really enjoyed that experience. I thought it was it was really solid. I had no complaints about it. And they had let me tell a story that I had wanted to tell. But that was years ago. But then we were in the middle of all of this, um, of everything. We were in the middle of, obviously, we're still in the middle of COVID. But around that time, the time that the editor reached out to me was really right when protests against police brutality, anti-Blackness, were in New York, were really being covered a lot, I would say, by the media. And loads of people, it seemed like loads of people were talking about it. And this editor reached out to me and he was like, hey, you know, I'm seeing these videos. I don't know what to say. (laughs) He was like, I feel like you've thought a lot about missing data. You've thought about stuff like this. I don't even, he was like, I don't even have a thing, a question I'm asking. I'm just wondering, do you have anything that you wanted to write about? And if so, like, would you be interested? I'm just curious for public, public, uh, interested in publishing something at 538. And I was like, as a matter of fact, because <laughs> I had been thinking specifically the stuff in the piece, but then I told him, look, I, I was like, I got to be honest with you. If I publish something with 538, it would, um, it, it would pretty much be going against 538's general vibe. Because the whole point of the piece is being like, well, like some when is data not not enough? When is this proof not enough? When has this not been useful? So when is the whole mission that you're talking about just really broken down? And he was like, you know what? It looks like we maybe have limitations in our approach. So let's do this. So really, that was how it ended up happening. And even to the point, every at every point along the way, I was like, there's no way. There's no way they're going to let me publish this. No way. They're and I kept being like, you know, they're going to push back. And the minute they push back, I'm like, I'm out. But they really didn't. They were actually, the, at least the, the editor who I worked with and the fact checker I worked with were both really supportive. And it, I did, I really liked the idea of publishing it in 538 precisely because it was doing that work of trying to pull apart some of the foundation, <laughs> like pulling apart the bricks, maybe, or like when you're playing Jenga, you, you know, you're like pulling those bottom, <laughs> those bottom blocks. You know, I wasn't going for the top ones. I was like, let's, let's pull it down. And uh, surprisingly to me, they just were like, yep, we're we're going to do it. So that's how it actually happened. Nah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, we're in this weird moment where it's like one of, like there's all these terrible things that are happening, but Miriam Kaba says something along these lines on Twitter, like, you know, you got the theory, you got the identity, you got the resources, this is time and opportunity. And so like, why aren't you going for your moment? And I feel like for a lot of us who've been studying, you know, black studies, critical tech, like there's a moment in an opening where, yeah, you could publish this piece that's real in 538. And maybe that wouldn't have happened six months ago. At the end of your essay in 538, you say, if if wider society recognizes data's limitations, it too can move on from over relying upon it as the only proxy for evidence. And I'm just wondering, like, how much this this need to even find evidence is just white supremacy and like people seeking um, to, to empiricize or justify this larger project of anti-blackness and just, you know, what is it right now that given the space where you can kind of write what you want without being policed by editors in the same way that it might've been like six months ago, you know, what, what, what is, what is the big next thing? Like, what are you really wrestling with and thinking, you know, when you have the space to kind of decenter white fragility? Mm, mm. Ooh, Khadija, you're so good at this. You asked like three <laughs> huge questions in one, and then you're like, now go. But <laughs> I think I'm not supposed to do that, but yeah, thank you. <laughs> well, it gets me, it's good for me. It gets me thinking of all these different directions. Um, okay, let me see if I can let me see if I can tease that apart a bit. Um, okay, so there is one part of this, I think, 
has to do with, you were talking a little bit about just this loosening and this like space to be able to talk about this a bit more right now, which, you know, actually to me feels less a space of, we, we've been out here talking. We've been having these conversations. That was recorded. We've been having these conversations for years. You know, it's not that we haven't been talking. It's just a question of who's listening. And I really felt like in that 538 piece, I found it really important towards the end. Something I um, think about a lot is like who the we is of a society. When people say like, we are blah, 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 who they're really referring to. And in that piece, uh, there's actually a great who, oh, y'all, my ref, I'm just forgetting everything. There's a really wonderful um, uh, researcher who talks about this and she talks about the nos of any society, which I really like. But that, I felt like it was really important towards the end of that piece to kind of differentiate and be like, look, there is like, there is a we, there is, there are people who have, who, there are many of us who have been aware of this, have been really aware of white supremacy. We're really aware of anti-Blackness. We're really aware of all the ways in which data becomes used as a tool that just furthers that, that project. We're, there are many of us who have no choice but to be aware of it. And so we're not just opening our eyes to it. We've been thinking about this in a lot of different ways. And then there are some, there are people who are now seeing that in a different way, kind of coming towards that. And first, like being like, look, these are, let's not like conflate everything. It's, it's useful for us to see that, that we are not always all, the question like within the piece, a lot of it, I'm talking about proof and how evidence is always used. One audience is leveraging it to, one group is, is presenting it to another group who hasn't been witness to something. And I just felt like breaking that down, being like, look, let's really think about this, like the different groups who are here and, and our relationships, our positionalities, how we are entangled together, but we're not all experiencing the same thing and talking about it, felt to me really, really just important and continues, I think, to be important. And then to one of your other questions, I'm not going to get all three of them, but I'll try. <laughs> <laughs> and then you just stop me when I'm, <laughs> when I'm somewhere else. But to one of your other questions, you were talking just about, you said how much of this, is this just, um, this, you're talking, what was it? I think you said this empiricism, just a project of white supremacy. Or was that it? What was the question, Khadija? That was the gist. That was the gist of it. Yeah, well, basically, that last paragraph of your of your 538 piece is saying, you know, maybe if society can, can uh, let me actually just pull it up. If wider society recognizes data's limitations, it too can move on from over-relying upon it as the only proxy for evidence. But I kind of wonder if this reticence to recognize data's limitations really is about the reticence to acknowledge like how much there's this project to, to empiricize anti-blackness. I think it's two different things that are really connected. And I don't know if this is right. This is me just thinking, this is just my thoughts. I'm not citing any, you know, I'm just thinking. But I think it's two different things that are interconnected. One of the things is that First off, like this idea of data, which is really just, we get it from all the way back, enlightenment, this sense of rationality, like, oh, this is how we make sense of the world. This is it. Like, this is where we get to the truth, the tr like this, that capital T truth of the world, which supposedly just exists out there. And we use data to just measure it. And it's, you know, it's objective and it's neutral and it gives us what we need and blah, 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 blah. All of that. I think there's that aspect. And to be clear, that really does come from like uh, that comes from a particular group and way of seeing the world that was, who who was it who said earlier? Elon, was it you who was talking about 
something about these uh, ideas being like exported all around the world. We're talking about tech companies. Yeah, right. right? Like like enlightenment rationality, right? Kind of like that mm-hmm. mental model is like reconstructed in Silicon Valley and just gets exported all over. And then that becomes the only acceptable way to be, to understand and to think. Exactly. I think that there's so, so nicely said, so concise. Yes. Uh, just that, like there is that. There's that, like that is just part of it. And that is the tradition that data emerges from and just cannot be divorced from, which is not just like, oh, a way of seeing, like, this is how it is. But this, like the way that you're talking about this in context, coming from a particular group, aided through colonialism, spreading this around the world. Now we see this kind of, it's it's the same train that now we can connect to tech companies. There's that. And then I think anti-Blackness, what is what I think is so interesting about um, the piece or the thing that I found that always stood out to me and part of why I wrote that one proof is not enough is actually there are so many examples of black folks and people who are committed to this project of, of being against white supremacy being like okay word I hear you data got it now let me use this <laughs> I'll do the same thing I'll speak your language and in those instances of course it was like oh no 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 mm-mm, mm-mm, nope actually you know we just use this in certain ways it's nope not always not anything nope don't worry about that which like speaks to that malleability, which really just speaks to power. So it's the way those two things intersect, like the short answer to your question is yes, <laughs> it is just white supremacy. But the longer answer to me is that actually there is there are these questions of like power, I think that are at the heart of this, that are not just, that are like reinforced through this datification of the world, but also can be subverted because um, I think because of the same way of thinking, but that, are tied, they're tied to it, but not quite the same in my mind. Again, curious what y'all think. Um, I'm inclined to agree. I think one of the things that, that comes into mind, also especially like thinking a little bit about your, your art practice as well, is you have this, this process where like better, better speakers than me have kind of talked about the, the process from, okay, you had, you had like Gutenberg's press and like the power of the author and the ability to disseminate information. And now the the power almost goes to the curators or the editors, right? Because there is so much information available. And I think I see this in in your art practice, but then also I think in like Sam Levine's, like this idea of capturing like what is there and what isn't there and um, that as a form of critique. I, I, I may be losing the thread a little bit of my thought, but I think that you do this so well in your, your catalog of missing data sets and that being a form of understanding and data, right? And, and that being a form of pointing out what isn't there is exactly the problem, right? So you, you choose to empiricize the world in a way that conforms to your pre-existing notions of the world. And if those include anti-blackness, that gets encoded within. Yeah, exactly. I I mean, I think the thing about so much of what I'm always interested in starts from this place of just absence, not in a really, I mean, absence as like very necessary and very banal and not that's different than like, what is it, what is hidden or what is like invisible? No, like really the things that must be removed for a particular system to make sense. The things that are like statisticians will talk about how there's always something that's going to be missing and it is always directly related to what you're counting. Um, or at least with well, the statisticians I've been around talk about that. I don't know if they all do, but the ones who I've been around say that. And just that looking at that, that absence and 
being like, yeah, this is this is part of the system. And really, especially lately, I keep thinking about what is it that thinking about maintenance? What is it that maintains these things that we keep talking about? It's not just that these things were created. It's not just that we live in a white supremacist world. Like, What maintains that today? What are those incentives? What does that give in a structural sense? Yeah, I hear you. I guess I'm I'm also thinking out loud and I'm kind of undecided. I often ask people, like, where do they locate hope? And, you know, for me personally, I, there's days I'm despairing and days that I'm optimistic, but I just, I'm not sure if, you know, like who, like who you said, who is we? Who is this wider society? You know, I, I, you know, I think people on the bottom, I think they've been new to datification, even if they don't know that term was never in their interest. You know, there's nobody who's getting their DNA swabbed from their cheek in Rikers who was like, you know what, I, this is a mechanism for social good. <laughs> and I'm not sure if like it's a technical or like a knowledge deficit that 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 limits our ability to like regulate these systems. But at the same time, like, can you put it on individuals? I don't know. But maybe this is, I want to be mindful of time and I, I kind of want to seg to the T. So, but it's, 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 it's all related. And I like that you have the boys in this essay. So I kind of want to think out loud with you with this. And so, as I mentioned to you before we started recording, is that the podcast is basically a Trojan horse for me to work out all of my existential angst about tech and data policy, like with dope people who are doing cool Beautiful. work. And so as we get towards the end of this first season, you know, things, I'm just going to share like a litany of a few different things and you could kind of jump in where, where, where you fit in is, um, one, how are we going to change the system when we get funded by the system? I mean, I just, it's like, maybe this happens in other domains, but at least it's like more regulated. I don't know, in medicine, I just, I, I, I just don't think Google can fund its own demise. And I just wonder like, how are we going to get over this? And everybody wants to work with all these activist organizations. And I'm like, if you really about abolition, abolitionists is going to be like, wait, how you getting funded by the enemy? Like you can't be David and then Goliath is, you know, lining your pockets. Like it's just crazy to me. Two is that, you know, and I say this like I'm Ethiopian, you know, like I'm first, I'm first generation. I grew up here like in black American culture, but I'm first generation Ethiopian. And it's just, I wonder why it is that so much of the leadership in tech is first generation or like, you know, with an African background. And I just I'm concerned when we're like so much of the conversation happens within convenings by like white or like South Asian people. And then we're talking about a, a very specific like context dependent blackness and people are being brought in that maybe have like a very different life experience and haven't encountered some of the specific types of policing that they're describing until they've seen it through computer vision. Um, and so those are just two of my kind of like existential angst. Um, but I don't know, like what are, I feel like this is a great moment of possibility. And I, and I, and I feel privileged that, you know, I'm not really an academic, so no one can really ice me out and not co-author a paper with me and not co-sign a grant. So I feel like I can kind of say what I want. And I know that not everybody is in that position, right? And so mm. in this moment that we have, in this little platform we got, I'm just kind of curious, either my existential angst, if you want to respond to either of those two things, or, you know, kind of where, where you're at, where you're thinking. Mm. Yeah, well, you also you also had asked this question of where people locate hope. Right. And I do. I also hope I'm just saying I would love to hear y'all answer this, too. I'm very interested, having spoken to so many people and also all y'all doing great work. I would love to hear what y'all think. So I'm just setting that out there as something for us to come back to. Um, but 
yeah, you had these two two good points. How are we going to change the system when we're funded by it? Which for that first one is one that I think all of us are asking. You know, look, the truth is we are all complicit in this, like it or not. No matter, it's like it's like the thing that we always just tell people in digital security trainings, where we're like, yeah, do your thing, like get your own um, email address, get your own server, do it. But the minute you send a message to somebody with a Gmail email address, like back in Google's pocket. So what are you going to do? And I think that it, it, like that whole question is really one that in my head, I always think about as the um, reform or revolution. And it does. Well, I, I think that falling into that, and I'm not just saying this in like a, a, like a wishy-washy way. I really do. I think that falling into that way of thinking is it gets us into this binary that also doesn't, isn't true with how things have played out. I think that we have seen weak. Hmm. Let me make sure I can organize my thoughts. I think that there are ways, like you can do. I've always thought you can do reforms. Like there can be revolutionary reforms, but they're only the ones that lead. Like they do certain things and they lead to the revolution that you want to see. And I think that people in the abolitionist movement have really nice ways. I've actually seen such great charts from organizations where they're like, "Look, this is it. Does it do this?" Does it does abolitionist reforms yeah, versus reform? Exactly. Right. Like they talk about this. And I, what I like about that is that it is acknowledging there are, that we are all doing this. Like there's work to be done. However, it's hard. We know, but here's a way for us to make sense of, is this actually getting us to where we need to be? But to your point, like I hear you at the same time. I mean, I don't, I'm not really an academic. I am just left a job because of all of, because of so much more. I hope we could do a whole podcast on why I left it, but really partly due to this this like tension of being in the system and realizing that there are ways in which being in the system you can help people and you know distribute resources and bring others in and then also that there is a point at least for me that I've seen where I'm like actually I'm doing more harm than good what am I going to do but then you could you you know it too that trade off when you're not in it because then it's like you're you don't have these resources in the same way i think that we got to i don't know there's got to be a way of thinking about it that is um the word that I often think about is fluidity. Like there is not just one set approach to doing things. We have to be able to- Yeah, there's no ideological purity. No, of course not. And who needs that? That's boring. That's, you know, everything, it's it's not what it's about. Like really it's about us being able to move through different contexts and recognize what it is that we have and respond like water being poured into different containers and really be able to see the containers. Because at the very least, if you can see it, then you're like, I recognize the trade-off. No, I feel you. I want my, like, I want my money. I mean, I, what I want, first of all, how much agency do I have? But I want my money, like, one generation. <laughs> <laughs> it's, kind of, it's complicated. Like, I feel like Amazon is a very present villain, you yeah. know? And just, sorry to bother you, it was such a good movie. Give me that and Carnegie I just, money? Like, am I what you're <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, like, kinda, kinda. You know, it is real complicated. Standard I just, oil. I think yes. in the world of reformists, <laughs> in the world of reformist reforms, I feel like people need to take a stand and be like, at least let's not take Google, Facebook, yeah. and Amazon. And that said, like somebody, a, a PhD student at Stanford made this point to me, like, you know, they, they haven't divested from the prison industrial complex. So is the Stanford money better than the Amazon money? No. But I think in the, in the, in the space of tech to take a stand against like the primary actors that we're critiquing not to take their funding. I think that's part, in my opinion, that's part of the abolitionist reforms. Yeah, and I agree with you. I love that first generation. But I think that the key to me is that that's cool. I make these little rules where I'm like, I'm not going to take this from, I, I just can't take this this money here. No, but I'm not going to play myself and act like 
the money I got from my residency didn't come from that, like two steps away, two generations above Google funding here, sending money to these people who sent it here, who then passed it along there. And now it's coming to me so that I can feel good about myself. I think that is just the trick. The trick is to not, the trick is to like have those rules, but to not see it as like, now I'm morally superior or now I'm pure. Now I'm outside of the system. Because the goal is not, it's not just so, it never was like, are you inside? Are you outside? It's something, it's something else. I yeah. think. Well, the irony is like, we started going to Whole Foods to get organic food and then Amazon <laughs> bought Whole Foods. <laughs> <laughs> but they take food stamps. I think what you're getting on Khadija is this like, this kind of purity politics that people talk about, right? Like it's, it's not about being pure. It's about being self-aware, right? Like I think, I think like we need to be like hyper-conscious of these things and like not delude ourselves. But I, I, I agree that like there are, there are lines in the sand that, that absolutely should be. Drawn. Yeah. I will say a beautiful part of the abolitionist like intention is that you kind of have to find three ways of moving. There's like, you need to understand how to move within the system. You need to understand how to create policies that are going to mm. overthrow the system. And then at the third front is creating or building the new world that you want to see. And I think that's a beautiful part of the abolitionist movement that kind of all of this speaks to. Um, also, really quickly, to think about Amazon buying out Whole Foods, I was talking to a friend who's like, I only buy meat from Whole Foods, you know, because uh, the meat there is sourced very well. But I just read an article where um, uh, this guy was describing that this farmer bought 12 to 18 cattle uh, from his farm that were just fed grain all their life and for a month grass fed them. And because of that, he was then able to sell these 12 to 18 cattle to Whole Foods and market it as um, as grass-fed beef that's ethically sourced, right? And so it's interesting to see how Amazon is continuing to seep its its teeth into all of this. And so, they use prison so labor. On, mm-hmm. on the cattle note, I wait, can I just like, that's teeth. called grain-fed, grass-finished. And like that, that is a different conversation. Like I... I <laughs> Well, I don't. Want, I don't want to get into it, but like that is that is not. I think where where you want to be drawing the the ethical lines. That is like a pretty standard farming practice that is both done in like super eco friendly conscious farms, and then like also ones that are terrible and evil. Um, of course, but what I'm saying is that it's very different when it's then promoted yeah. as just grass fed beef, and uh, it doesn't explain the entire situation. But I think it alludes to what we're discussing. I mean, there's a lot of standard things that are crazy. Like my generation, you know, I was born in 88. So my generation, they had the whole conversation about, you know, realizing that food doesn't come from the grocery store. Like there's farms and stuff. For my kids, it's like food doesn't come from the fresh direct person. Like the delivery person is not the farmer. Like we get more and more removed from the supply chain. And so there's so many things that are standard and normal that are so like bizarre. Um, I just, yeah. You know, I guess this gets back to the question of hope is that, you know, my hope lies in I don't just want to make it better here. Like, I like nice things. You know, I've been broke my whole adult life and I really like, you know, the fancy things and the university resources. And, you know, I like all those things, but I really don't want to just make it better here. Like, I really appreciated how you talked about how you wrote that original paper in your undergrad undergrad because your friend died. I remember and one of our mutual friends threw together all those salons and I and I spoke to somebody who was like a researcher at one of the big think tanks and I was like, So so why are you into predictive analytics? And they got really defensive and they're like, Well, what do you mean? And they started telling me the entire C V. No, I was mm-hmm. like, Were you like twelve? And you were like, Oh, I love algorithms? Like, how did that happen? 
Um, and so I really just come from a human standpoint. Like, you know, I read a lot of stuff, but it really comes from like, I want to get out of this. And I just, you know, people in cages, you know, and it's not to be pedantic or, or to just like deploy these populist phrases to get away from like the nuance of socio-technical systems. But I just worry that when we don't... That A, when we so much of the conversation continues to center white fragility and you're using like identity politics in order to redress like societal harm, I just, that doesn't make me feel particularly hopeful (laughs) or like the lack of a class analysis. Like there's some, Mm. there's some memes going around about um, how this like weapons development company hired um, black trans people. And it's just, I think that particular one is a satire, but, you know, it's not that far from the reality. And just, that's what I'm wondering, like, how are we going to get out of here? What gives me hope is, like, people like you, our peers, who keep it a thousand, you know? And I that gives me hope that there's other people who are trying to figure out how to get out of this and know that we complicit, you know, there's nowhere to run. But I just, I don't particularly see where the opening is right now. Resistance may be getting yours a little bit, but like a radically different society, I don't quite see it yet. Mm. Yeah, oof. I hear, look, I hear you. I really do. Um, I I feel like I got two different answers. I always say that, but I got two different things. One is that <laughs> you were talking about, just talking about hope. And even to connect this to the conversation before, you know, part of what got me started thinking with that 538 essay, part of what got me was that I had been reading all these examples of Black people specifically in here through the 20th century who had, they were, who were like, look, we need to just catalog just how wild shit really is. And that should be enough because it's so wild. <laughs> like, look, the way things are here is actually so wild that how, I don't see how anybody could look at this and not, not be like, what? And so they had a lot of hope in this idea of like, let me just, you know, Du Bois is like, let me go down and do all this and collect this data. And this, you know, all these different groups are like, let's let's put together all the, let's do the work of going through all the violence that has been inflicted upon us. And let's actually write it all down so that we can submit it and point to it and do all that research around it. And the whole reason I think was this, this thing, their hope was that in making that clear, that would be enough. And I feel like we are definitely past the point. We have seen all that. We are past the point where we can put hope in that and like appealing to the system and being like, look, if we just ex- if we just keep bringing all this out and exposing and talking about, pe- you know, people are in cages. Look at all that's happening. Look at what's happening with ICE. Look what's happening here. That people, that that will be enough. I think we, we and I, when I say we, now I'm talking about like us here and other people who are listening to this or who agree, who are like, who just like you are like, I'm not about this. I think that we know, okay, there are forces in place that are benefiting from this. And so for me, a lot of what I keep thinking about now is actually there is this thing, like who is the we? There is a mindset that a lot of this is coming from this. There is like a whole, I hate to use the fancy whatever phrases, but it's a whole matrix of domination that we are all caught up within. And really I'm interested in things that can pierce that and reveal that or are just like, we are doing something else outside of it that is not defined by being the counter to these things, but is like, we're trying to do it out here. I agree with you. What that really looks like is, is the question, but that, isn't that the work? Isn't that what all of us have been doing in all different ways? I don't know. I don't know. Who's, who's all of us? Well, yeah. one, I feel like, I feel like, oh, I know. Sorry, I, I meant know. the four of us. <laughs> oh, oh, well, I need to be clear. This is the thing about the we, you gotta be clear. <laughs> I mean, like, isn't that what we, the four, like us here, isn't that what we've been trying to do? Not all of us. 
<laughs> yeah, no, that, that's important to clarify the we. I was mm-hmm. like, mm, I don't know about that. Mm-mm, I don't know about no, that. No, no, no. But look, we at the 55-minute mark, so we're supposed to do the whole ritual where you recommend some. And I don't know if we have enough time to address this, but I'm really curious. Look, people don't want to talk to me about this. But I'm really curious about what is your take on the fact that it just amazes me that there's such like such disproportionate African representation of the black experience in tech. And not not that the whole diaspora is not black, but I'm just it's like a very particular dynamic. And I'm just Yes. What do you think? What is you your know take what on my that? Take? Well, no, you don't know, you're about to find out. But it's, <laughs> yes, of course. Of course. We this is Khadija, we I can't speak for Stanley or Elon, but we as as like diaspora people, we don't have the same background. Like we don't have the same trauma. We don't come from the same thing. We haven't dealt with the same thing. This is I remember when I was in college, I was in charge of not in charge. I was one member of the Black Student Union Council. And somebody came up uh, at the meeting and was like, I went to Princeton and was like, I what I would like to talk about is uh, the underrepresent upper under I'm quoting this person. This is their word. They were like the underrepresentation of homegrown Negroes in this space. Are we allowed? I don't know if we allowed to say this on your podcast, but you there's know, no rules. Edit. But she, no. yeah, I'm with it. <laughs> yay. Okay. Well, she was like, I really want to talk about the fact that this school says that 11% of the population is black. However, really, three percent of the population is black from black Americans, and the rest of this is all hyphenated. Uh, people, Jamaican, American, Nigerian, Americans, Haitian, American, Ethiopian, American, Somali, blah, 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 all of these things. And she was like, I just would like to talk about it. Can we do that? And it, this was 10 years ago and people were just like, oh, what do we even say? And I find it really interesting because I, the like fluster, the level of fluster within that conversation, I feel like I still, still see and sense. But this part of, I think it is so, I think it is a really important thing to address. I think about it a lot because in some ways what I would love people to do and for us to have a sense of us four of us (laughs) is this question of like what is what the world that we are here on this you know we're here we're all um on the in the u.s right now what created this the so that we could be here we know the like people came blah 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 like settler colonialism all of this but also like us specifically what were the things that allowed us to be here what do we benefit from what are we like taking advantage of? What are we not? And I think that understand for me, like I think about this a lot, understanding all of this is what helps me think about how I locate myself in the work I'm doing and who I'm working with. My friend, um, Jen, who is a really wonderful organizer in um, Boston, they were like, you know, we, the reason why we need to know our identity is so that we know how we can act on the issues. That is why we know it so that we know how we stand with all the other work we do, not just because not just to hold it, not just to have that and like have more conversations, but because there is this question of action that, that translates to. So that is not a, I don't know. Again, I told you I wouldn't have any good answers for you. But just to say that I think that it's something that absolutely is is like foundational. It absolutely is part of this conversation. I don't know what you mean when people you say people won't talk to you about it. I'll talk to you about it for days. Publicly. Not publicly. Let's let's be real. Let's be honest. Like, I feel like so many of these convenings are, you know, we're centering the voices of black women. I mean, I I just, if I had another white person tell me, this is such an important conversation. (laughs) And, you know, now they got equations. They be indexing us. They like, let's calculate the proportion of trans people. (laughs) But, you know, 
we're the liar. Show me the lie. Show me the lie. Oh, and it's no just in, in the framework of that conversation where some guilty person and the people of color, I, you know, and I really hate people of color because it's just like, you know, most of the time, the only, I just, people of color makes me think of colored people, which makes me think of South African apartheid, which makes me feel like, you know, my high yellow self is probably the only colored person half the time in the room. And then why is that even a rubric? Why are we using apartheid to come up with the lexicon? But I just feel like in that frame, nobody want to talk about it. And you know, white people, they so excited to meet their diversity quota if they even bother. Nobody's being like, oh, well, like, what's the difference in positionality between the Nigerian American who went to, you know, um, an English boarding school in Nairobi uh, versus the black American person who's like under facial recognition surveillance in their Michelin building? People, they're not, they're not parsing that. And so I hear what you're saying, though, that we've been having the conversation. So I think that there's a difference. And this connects to the funding thing. Like, I often think about, like, I love Spike Lee, right? But he took that NYPD money mm -hmm. to do the PR and shame. Mm -hmm. And that there's not that, I, I don't know, maybe this is an immigrant thing, but I'm pro-shame. Like, I feel like we could use, you know, in, 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 in doses, you know, not like all went around. But I feel like there should be some shame about the money that we're taking. Um, and I just think there's a level of detail on the conversations that are happening in the social justice space that may not grasp all the technical things that we're discussing that doesn't translate to the technical space. And I just like, you know, I know you hate fat, fat star, which is now ironically fact star. Um, but like those type of places. Yeah, I don't think, you know, I think we show up, we roll in and nobody talking about that. But, you know, Khadija, I'm not looking for those type of places to be giving me these conversations and these answers. That is the we thing that I keep talking about. That's not mm. the we. Mm. That is not Where's it. the Black Public Technology Project? Where is our thing? It's called Where's the Imagining. Where is it's, it? It's if pretty I, impressive. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe you heard it. it. <laughs> How you gonna be standing up and being like, where? We did. <laughs> I'm gonna edit this part out. Uh, now we about to get the grant money. We about to listen. We about to get bread out you. That's for after. The <laughs> Sorry. Um, all right, I'm not gonna beat that. Oh, yeah, no, I have a lot of. All right, look, we had an hour and one minute. I let everybody, if you want to make a final comment, and then let's let's scroll to our recommendations section. It's like double dust, y'all. You gotta just jump in. <laughs> I rendered y'all speechless. I'm waiting for y'all to go oh. first. I still feel this conversation mm. could go on. We got, All we right, got I need to, to go. Nobody's screaming end, right now. Okay. But y'all go ahead. I mean, I've I've said this before, right? Like, as as the like white person in this conversation, right? Like, is the is the onus on more white people to be like, ah, yes, but but you're Nigerian, <laughs> you know? Like, <laughs> I. I think that, like, Khadija, you get on this point that's totally accurate, right? Which is, like, you have a bunch of super nervous, uncomfortable white people who are terrified of diversity in any respect and know that they're supposed to be doing better and then manage to fuck it up in various ways. I mean, this is, like, my thing, and this goes back to the COVID point. Like, uh, you know... There's all these issues, right? Nobody is really collecting the data. It's not being aggregated by race correctly. And then like, who defines these racial categories, right? Like if somebody's like checkboxed in the Hispanic category, like we still know as much as we did before the box was checked. Like, is they white? Is they black? What? We all know. Rikers had like a disproportionate rate of COVID-19 transmission, but we're basing that data off the Department of Corrections. And we don't have the Du Bois Institute out here, like going from jail to jail, like collecting the real. We don't have that. And it's just, you know, to me, why it matters is that 
all this conversation about like freaking bias and racial disproportionality just like professionalizes and like um what's the word that i'm looking makes opaque the fact that there's really like an act of genocide in my opinion happening to black americans like looking at child welfare you know, they're systematically separating children from their families. Like one of the caseworkers who wrote invoking the 13th Amendment in order to reform the child welfare system and then went published his piece in Cardozo, then went to do his PhD um, dissertation on the Geneva Convention and how these are, are acts of, of genocide when you're systematically decimating a population. When we're talking about policing and who dying from COVID, that shit ain't equal. It ain't everybody that's just black. Like, they talk about with these algorithms, selective incapacitation. They want the biggest risk factor for having your child removed is that the mother was in child welfare before. And so they're like hyper targeting people. And I'm not saying that like, you know, they're, they're people who are of African, you know, the African continent descent that come here don't experience racism or anything like that. But I'm just saying it's a very specific situation. And it's like, this is like genocide. So I just am concerned when I walk into these spaces and people is not speaking up, not the white people. Not the way, I mean, do I feel like white people should say something? Yes, from the sense that I was like also trained as a revolutionary communist and I have since left the party and everything. But like, yeah, you know, people should have like a historical material analysis and, you know, internationalism and all that. But I'm just saying like among us, us meaning the first generation Africans who have access to these spaces and platforms and get interpolated by like these predominantly white institutions as being black American because they're unable, they just see us all as, first of all, they don't even, they can't even tell us apart. They definitely can't tell like all these different positionalities apart. Um, I'm not saying the onus is on them. It's on us. Like, I feel like people got to speak up and it's just, this is how, this is how you rename genocide as bias Mm. and all this other stuff. I don't know. Not a fully formulated thought, but this is, I have a lot of anger behind this. Nah. I just, I don't, sorry, go on. Oh, yeah, yeah, but you can go ahead. You can go ahead. No, 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 please. I've been uh, talking. Please, um, please. I was going to say, I actually love the title of your collection of work, uh, Quiet Violence, because I think it speaks to a lot of what Khadija is talking about, especially in terms of, like, renaming genocide, renaming, like, child separation to just bias or uh, bad parenting or, like, renaming this. Um, it is such a violent act, but it's really, really silenced. And I, um, I love that you think about all the different ways in which it is silenced, whether it's um, the police silencing with predictive policing, the system itself, such as heat maps or crime maps uh, in these police departments, um, and thinking about your um, your piece, the future is here, and looking at how the people doing data entry or who are behind the machine learning systems, which are these Venezuelans that are being paid very, very low wages to add to this technology, their existence is also now being silenced in the data imaginary. So what does it... Um, how how can we change our understanding of this into the quiet violence that you so so perfectly titled? Mm, I mean, really, all of my work is trying to do exa- this, like this thing that we're all talking about. We, the four of us, are all talking about. Y'all gonna make me be so specific from now on. Anytime I say <laughs> we, <laughs> but it's good. I think it is needed. Um, it is that is being like, look, actually, we are existing in this state of just abject violence. And the ways in which that is sanitized, scrubbed away, as you said, we, we like convert this into bias. We convert this, we talk about it in different ways. It's just deep violence. 
sometimes it's not recognized as that, you know, and even sometimes it feels to me like even in the spaces to the same point that how we're making, like in the spaces where people are committed to doing work against that, particularly like in these very, these data, these tech spaces, I've heard people, at, I've heard like researchers and uh, journalists tell me that they're looking for the harm that within, you know, anytime, anytime a system comes out, their, their role is what they want to do is just find the harm. And they know the harm is always going to be black and brown people. And so that's what they're trying to do. So they, and they're like, they're like, you know, I'm fighting the good fight. And I'm like, so transparent, right? I, I was just like, it's y'all for y'all. It's like the harm is the point, but you're not trying to change it. You just want to like point to it and not really do anything about it. And I, I think that all of, all of these conversations obviously are, are connected to one another. I know that for me, I'm not interested in, I'm not interested in guilt. I'm not interested in representation. Khadija, I'm not even interested in shame. I'm a child of immigrants too. I'm less interested. I think shame was just to get you to do an action or to change something. <laughs> I'm interested in that change. <laughs> I'm interested in the action. I'm interested in just being able to puncture this, like, this, like, I feel like it's like a fog that surrounds being able to talk about mm-hmm. these things and therefore do something about them and change them. And so pretty much all I'm ever trying to do is be like, look, there is a way, this, this world that we live in has been organized to support a very small group of people. Yeah, it's, it's that and learned to helplessness, push right? That. Say more. Uh, just, you know, like there's a there's a kind of common like, oh, but that'll never change, right? Like I I don't know. I mm. maybe maybe it's maybe it's yeah. not accurate now in the time of like mass political protest, but like, you know, the But who being learned who having learned helplessness? I don't know. That's a good point. I mean, probably me, right? Like that's like like cynicism is just another expression of of like learned helpless hopelessness. You know, you're just like, ah, oh, fuck, everything's terrible, and then you just like keep living in that morassity. I think there's two different things, though. I mean, I think that like one kind of what, what you were saying, Mimi, that there's this idea. I mean, this is more specific to Black people, but that like. And we we talked about this at length uh, with the what's what's the name uh, Romy Morrison and Trevor Ellison mm. thinking about this black sense of place and just you know that blackness is more than just being a subject of violence right there's so much more that's an excess of that um, you can't understand what it means to be black in America without understanding this harm but yeah first of all the point of documenting any of it was always to get out. Right. And then second, there's so much more to it than that. And people have agency. But I'm not sure if people are I I, I don't think necessarily people are just helpless. Like the point I always emphasize with child welfare is that, yeah, they've been systematically trying to exterminate like families. Right. But we still have all these kinship ties, like despite everything, people have persisted in their dancing and they're making art and they continue. Right. And so that I mean, in that sense, like I have some kind of generational meta meta hope generational meta hope is that what you said yeah like i have some sense like i asked joshua bennett was a distinguished speaker for that cornell program i always ask everybody like you have hope and he gave some really poetic flowery (laughs) answer about you know for for (laughs) centuries people have been resisting and fighting for liberation and so i find tremendous hope and joining in this struggle with hundreds of years behind me and I and I hope that in this yearning to get out, even if I don't got the roadmap and I don't know how to escape from this situation, that you know we're we're leaning towards 
some 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 kind of otherwise right and even in that in between time even in that process like even if we didn't overthrow the whole racial capitalist system like creating spaces where we can have real conversations that puncture the fog you know that that part gives me hope um i mean but i feel like i didn't address your other question so go ahead no i was just gonna say part of i mostly say i'm i mostly identify as an artist because it don't really mean anything and part of what I think is tied to that is this, I'm not, you know, this, you know, y'all gotta, I'm like too excited. I need to put my thoughts together. Um, but really I'm <laughs> not so connected to needing to see that everything I do, that I need to see the impact of it right away. And for me, like part of the reason why I'm not is because I see the way that I'm inspired by stuff that happened in Nigeria in 1959. And how that is crucial to me, understanding my place in the world and doing work that I want to do and working with other people for things. So I think that I feel, I feel a sense, I feel a sense of hope that is not, I don't think that things have just, this is like a controversial, I guess, point, but I don't think that things in history have just gotten better and better. I think they've sometimes gotten better and then usually there's a huge backlash and things get worse for usually the people who are like the people who are at the bottom of the society or what will happen is that like a certain group, usually like the, I don't know, like the upper middle class will do better, but then poor people are still struggling and it just like they get masked. And this I think is really part of what you were saying, Khadija, with the trying to understand blackness in a wider way is looking at the ways in which the success of some groups masks the violence that is still being uh, done to other groups. And then, but yeah, go on. No, no, go. No, I was going to say the other half, I mean, I say this is kind of a joke, but it's also serious, is that I wanted to start a nonprofit for at-risk academics <laughs> because they would be cracking me up. You know, people are always out here trying to save black people, right? But I'd be like, yo, these people are so miserable. <laughs> I, I, My diagnosis of academia is that all of this like bizarre, toxic, like uh predator behavior to people's phd students and like attacking people for citations and stuff like that it's like you lonely mm-hmm. and you out here trying to save these people we be dancing we be cooking together like mm. people are like oh my god you're a struggling single parent like i don't know like they just sit they think we like reenact amistad or something in our house like <laughs> I'm like you're not over here suffering <laughs> like you know my kids be over here like dancing on the kitchen table, playing loud music. Plus now we on some Jeffersons. We just moved to a Brooklyn Brown cell, so we definitely <laughs> don't know how to act. And when I was broke, like, you know, we had TV and sneakers. We was happy. We was chilling. Like, I think, you know, some of that, some of that narrative where we only see the success of the middle class being made legible kind of misses the point that, like, I don't know. I mean, on a, in an African context, I love, like, there's this great piece in Long Reads about Nigeria and how this, like, um, they were trying to do all the city planning and they didn't take into account like these uh, illegal tent cities mm-hmm. because they were illegal. And then their map was completely off because, yeah, these people exist. And then Doctors Without Borders came to come save them from like dysentery because they didn't have real plumbing. And then they packed it up in like 90 days because the people had their own medical system that they just never registered mm-hmm. with the system and their own kind of like... Um, not just public health network, but some kind of like irrigation and plumbing system that was like based off of some indigenous tradition. And so they was chilling. They was fine. Like, so, you know, one of the things that I was thinking when you were saying, do things get better? Do things get worse? I feel like it connects to, you made another point earlier about death. And I think it was Carl Sagan who said this, like Western societies have a bias where they ask, what does this mean? 
when a lot of other cultures will say this thing has meaning. And so what do we make of that? How do we respond? How do we, how do we hold that? And just, I wonder if, you know, the worse and the better are just all happening simultaneously, like in the multiverse. And so I'm just kind of like lingering in this moment. I'm hopeful and I'm angry and I want things to change now. And I know that they will, you know, I know that, you know, we wait in generations. Like I, I am, I am more hopeful though, I will say for my kids, great, great grandchildren than I am maybe for my children. You got a lot more patience than some people. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, my, I don't have children, but I have a hopefulness for my children that is less hopefulness and more like, y'all got to do that. <laughs> you, you have to, you have to. I don't know, it's like a determination there. I hear you, I hear you. You know, to that, what you were saying, there's something you said that just reminded me of, there was this exhibition that was in Nigeria, it was in Houston, it was called The Progress of Love. And there was this artist who was part of it, was like trying to donate, she was in Nigeria and she was trying to donate money for like, people in the west but i can't remember exactly somewhere in the u.s and she was just like please donate money like come on they need it and it was this tongue-in-cheek thing but it was kind of like what you were saying her part of the point of it was she was like no but really it's not it's not money they're like they need something something is off something is really really off we need to try to fix that and there was so there was something to that where i was like yeah yeah i hear you i hear you and that's something you know james baldwin stays talking about that all the time He's like, really, though, or stayed talking about that all the time. And Tony Morris, all those, they used to stay talking about how, look, the issue is not with us. Like, there is something else here that we need to try and, try and think through. But I don't know. I don't know. I, I really do. I hear you. I go back and forth on all of this. I think that those words, I don't feel too, um, you know, what? I'm just going to stop there. Actually, I'm going to cut it off because I feel like I'm about to open another can of worms. So. Yeah, I hear you. So I think we should do. I think we should do the recommendations. I will just indulge myself. I'm gonna tell like two thirty second stories about Ethiopia. Mm-hmm. First thirty second story is that you know there's like a lot of street children in Ethiopia, which is in many places. And just one ironic tangent of the tangent is that uh, what do you call that thing? Foosball is like extremely popular in Addis. So you just see foosball tables everywhere. And then there's these like little what do you call them? Fables that a lot of the middle class people read about like the dangers of giving to the orphan children. And like one of them that cracks me up was talking about how they give shoes to the kids with no, you know, because they, the the kids are outside begging with no shoes and then they'll come back the following day and the kid is not wearing the shoes because A, they sold the shoes to go get money. And two, um, they get more money if they're not wearing shoes because they look like more in need. Mm-hmm. And people were just saying like, you know, the lack of values here. I'm like, yo, homeboy is six. He has created like a whole enterprise with the oldest person is 11. And we're over here talking about these kids are uneducated and they just like figured out a way to create new kinship networks to sustain themselves, to go out here and get money, their own culture. They out here playing foosball, like not out here starving and just like flies landing on them. Like they, they're so ingenious. Sometimes I feel like people miss the point. That's one. Second 30 second one is that I remember I went to the Addis Ababa Museum and I went to go see Lucy, who uh, was at that time like the original human being. I think they found somebody older now. And then I look in there and they say Plaza of Paris. I'm like, where Lucy? Lucy was on tour. I don't know which university, but it was an American. They were like, she on tour in American University. I was like, first of all, she already made, she's already named by the archaeologist girlfriend liking Lucy in the Sky Mm -hmm. Diamond from Needles, as if we don't have our own musical tradition that's like 
looked millennia older than the freaking Beatles and all the problems with the Beatles. But now her remains is on tour. I was like, well, you let a black lady rest. <laughs> she was there two shifts. <laughs> too much, too much. And then they got this hashtag now, museums are not neutral. I'm like, museums got bodies. Where is that hashtag? I was like, we're talking about neutrality. Museums got, oh, here yeah, they getting bodies. Like, come on. And that's the part, I'm just like, we need to level up, y'all. Like, can we keep it real? Like, we asking to diversify the board. Like, give us our bodies back. That's it. Um, all right. So that's, I'm going to get off my, my pedestal with that one. Um, so let's, yeah, let's start with, or Mimi, you ready? You want to share? It could be something on topic or off, but just something we'd like our listeners to hear, listen to, something that you vibing with. Mm, okay, okay. Let me see. I think I got three things. One's a book. <laughs> One's one one of I guess tweets, and then the third is music. Okay, first one. I am just really obsessed with Sylvia Winter so hard because um, I feel like she just talks about. I felt like when I was I felt like reading a lot of her work. I was like, you are talking about the things that I feel like I have not been able to name for a long time, and I think it is so tied to this conversation. Um, so, on um, being human as practice something like that. That's like one of them. But then I think um, that is the book. Oh yeah. I think that one is by Catherine McKittrick, who is like kind of, Sylvia Winter is like hard to read. Skylar McKittrick is trying to make her a little bit more like, like grounding some of it. And so I just love that. I highly, highly recommend that. That's great. Even though it's, it's like work, but good work. Um, And then I think that to some of the things, some of the things that you are saying, this is really, so that's the first one. The second one is just uh, Mumtaza Mary, who I don't even know if I'm saying her name right, because I've never heard it said out loud. I've only read her poems and her uh, tweets. But she's a British Somali poet who I really adore, actually, because I really love her work. Um, and also because I just, I'm not like even really on Twitter like that. But whenever I am, I really like going to her page because I love how she breaks it down. And I feel like, Kadita, these things that you're talking about, where you're like, we're not talking about that. Um, she is in dope ways. So I really like that. And then the other one, ooh, let me, I gotta make sure I get it right. Um, what was it called? So I have been really into, uh, this is almost like a, it seems almost like a, uh, what's it called? Like a, a cliche. Cause like to talk about jazz, when you're talking about anything around blackness, it really is a cliche. But, you know, for me, like I told you, I'm Nigerian immigrant. I was not born here. My I'm, I immigrated here. I did not grow up on a jazz tradition. I sometimes would read things and I'd be like, word, word. Yeah, mm-hmm, got it. Like jazz, so cool, whatever. But I really actually spent some time like listening to it, thinking about some jazz. And I really was flipping out because I was like, this is just all the stuff that I feel like I've been talking about with people. Because I'm just like this, the jazz, I don't know if any of y'all are like jazz people, you play jazz. But just the idea that like, there's so, just, just the idea. I love jazz, just by, by the way, like, that's like a whole, we, me and you could do a second episode. Let's do it. That's, <laughs> we should do it. Because I've just been getting so deep. But something that I'm just obsessed with is the idea of the jazz song. How I feel like jazz songs are more abstract than any, than anything else. In that you listen to a song, but you also have the understanding that if you heard the song, in real life, like it would never be the way that you heard the recording. And so this like pushing against just quantification and codification, like this is like that, like the thing is multiple things. 
is just so inherent in jazz. And that's just like the, the skinniest little thread. There's so much we talk about about what's like put into it and this really like the Black experience and the way that it was like seen and portrayed. But really that, just even thinking about the jazz song as a space where something can be what it is and what it is not at this at the exact same time. And just that everybody's like, word, of course, that is what it is. To me, I'm like, yes, that is so, so, so subversive. That is so much of what we're talking about when we're like, we're trying to exit out of the space of just this enlightenment era, blah, 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 blah. We are trying to say that, look, it doesn't have to just like, we don't have to just know what it is and what it means. We can just like hold multiple things. I love how jazz does that. I think it is truly such the best example of that. Um, yeah, I think those were the three. Have you read Epistrophes by Brent Hayward? No, should I? Yes, mm. so good. Brent Hayes Edwards. Sorry, I combined his middle and last name into one. So good. And just the idea, there's like a parallel between the epistrophe and the algorithm that I can't quite articulate, but I think that you'd be wit. Word. A uh, quick segue, kind of a terrible segue, but uh, very fitting to what you just said. Uh, so one of my recommendations is Kindred by Octavia Butler. Um, and the segue is there's a scene in Kindred where um, Dana, this main character, is watching. So the book is based on this woman being transported to, to back to the Annabelle himself. And there's a scene where she's watching these kids play. Um, her white husband had been transported with her. And he's like, oh, they're just playing. And she's like, no, they're literally reenacting being sold. And they're complaining about who's worth more. So um, I would first just recommend Kindred because Octavia Butler is getting my whole life together um, and has been for the past few months, all quarantine, honestly. Um, so that's a book. Uh, a show I would recommend is on Netflix. It's called Love, Death, and Robots. There's a specific episode um, called Multiversity where they kind of go back in time and they choose an event. They choose specifically Hitler's death and they kind of recreate six different scenarios in which he died um, before he rose to power. Um, and I immediately thought about how, but back then that's clearly impossible, right? They're just fabricating what could have happened. But with the amount of surveillance that um, all of these tech companies and uh, not just tech companies, but the police that the government has on us right now, they can, you can really recreate ep that episode in such a vastly different and more accurate way based on the information that people are constantly collecting on us. Um, so Love, Death, and Robots would definitely recommend. Um, and then musically, um, I've been in a, artistically, I've been in a place of exploring the, to be a little vulgar, the way that like sex is playing into um, this time and into, I think, my life as a queer person. Um, two songs is Poppy Pacify. I had already, I performed a piece actually through We Be Imagining um, a while back, looking at how we are some, we become addicted to our own abuse when we are with certain abusive partners. And so I, I've continued to think about that and expand on that idea and think about how the daddy trope is a, um, in some ways, a self-inflicted form of abuse in our search for this daddy. Um, and so that's something I'm thinking through. And then also Janae Aiko, she just released a deluxe album. And there are a few songs that um, I think about how, like what it means to be Black and to be able to have sex. And um, some of her songs, one in particular called Come On, just 
her tone and her expression in the song makes me think about like black a sex as a form of release or reprieve from the struggles that we um, are often subjected to whether it's hate crimes being uh, attacked like there there's so much to it and so those are two songs and ideas that i'm thinking through and works that i'm also working on and that's it (laughs) on a on a different note yeah my recommendation i recently listened to a podcast called blowback which retells kind of a lot of the build-up and events of the iraq war and uh you know i think we've kind of allowed certain things to to fade into the memory hole a little bit including many of the events leading up to the iraq war and enduring and now that like there is like a lot more just like intentional incoherency just like in the news um a lot of these ghouls from the early 2000s are using this time to kind of rehabilitate themselves and and I think retelling that story is incredibly important. All right, y'all. That's it. Oh, wait. Thank you so Hold much. Up, for y'all. Oh, I forgot to say that. I'm talking about jazz. I didn't even say the song I was thinking about, which is Better Get go It ahead, In Your ahead. Soul. Better Get It In Your Soul, uh, Charles Mingus. What was I going to say? Um, oh, yes. That's it, y'all. Thank you so much for coming on the show. This is the We Be Imagining podcast with Mimi Anuha. Um, I guess you're not on to it. Do you want them to follow you anywhere? You want to shout out? Your latest work or anything? No. <laughs> <laughs> they can find me. It's all good. You can listen. You can listen to Mimi Anuha only on the <laughs> Imagining Podcast. I don't exist outside of this podcast. <laughs> She's actually a figment of our imagination. Nah. Um, but please like us, subscribe us. You know, please give us a free labor and write a review on the damn Apple platform. It does prior. I don't know how it works, but it'd be prioritizing us when you do that. Please do that. And write to us at webeimagining at gmail.com. That's webeimagining at gmail.com. That's it, y'all.